Now, we here at Prodigal know that we can never make a generality that fits every single woman or every single man, okay? We, we know this, okay? But here are a couple of differences that I've seen between women and men. And again, I'm not trying to generalize everybody, but this has been predominantly my experience, and maybe you'll find yourself in some of these. So one of the main differences is this. Women are talkers, men aren't, okay? Now, men speak an average of about 7,000 words per day. Women speak... 15,000 with gusts of up to 50, okay? Uh, so ladies, you ever wonder why when your husband comes home from work, he doesn't talk? He used up all his words, okay? If he had two meetings, he was all done, okay? This is why we grunt. This is why we make weird noises. Uh, number two, men are hunters, women are hinters. Now, I'm not saying that men hunt animals. I've, I've never actually done that. But when I go to a store to get something, I attack it. I'm not distracted by anything else. I'm, I'm going to get this, and I'm in, and I'm out. Many women are hinters. Have you ever had your wife ask you for a breath mint? Okay, it's, it's not a mint. It's a hint. Okay? Everyone walks through a store, and your wife says, oh, that's nice. She doesn't mean that's nice. She means check the price. And uh, what she's saying is, I want you to buy that for me, but I don't want you to buy that for me now. That would be too easy. Later, when we're home... I want, for a birthday or just because you love me so much, I want you to go back to the store that you were just at and buy it and surprise me with it. But you didn't tell me you wanted that. Yes, I did. I said it was nice. <laughs> no. We're different. Uh, we're different. It's not all love songs and romance. Marriage is about conflict, working through real-life difficult problems and conflict. Uh, I read this quote, marriage is like getting a phone call at 3 a.m. in the morning. You get the ring, and then you wake up, okay? We romanticize marriage as if all our problems will go away once we find the love of our life, our soulmate, and we're never going to fight, and we're just going to love, and we're going to make love all the time, and it's just going to be heaven on earth. I have been married 13 years. I have learned a lot. I no longer make the same mistakes that I used to make when I was younger. Early on in our marriage, I saw something that I'd never seen before. Uh, it's called the owl, okay? Now, the owl, this is when a woman is trying on clothes, and then she backs up to a mirror and stands on her tiptoes and contorts her neck like an owl hunting for a mouse in the night, okay? And her question is not who. No, no, no. The question is, are these jeans too tight? Now, guys, it's a tricky question, okay? It's loaded. Uh, now, my 20-something self didn't know how to respond because in reality, I don't, you know, they may have been a little too tight. I don't remember. So she says, are these pants too tight? And then I say two words, kind of, kind of. I see the look on her face. I mean, no, no, not kind of. I mean, they're full. No, they're not full. No, they're just, it's not what I meant. That led to a lot of tears that night. In fact, my wife almost cried as well. Um, <laughs> it's okay to admit that we're not compatible. Uh, incompatible doesn't mean irreconcilable. Let's read what the Apostle Paul has to say about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. It says this, verse 21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your... Uh, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, some people are cringing, and understandably so. Husbands throughout the centuries have used this verse and quoted this verse as a way of silencing their wives and doing whatever they wanted to do. That's not what the Bible's saying. The consequences of this have been devastating. And if I'm a woman reading this scripture, I want to slam it shut and say, it's ancient, it's barbaric, end of story. But that is not what the passage is leading us towards. Um, the section on marriage begins at verse 21, and it says this in verse 21, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a mutual submission in marriage. It is not one does the submitting and the other person does the everything else. There is a mutual submission in marriage. Wives are called to do something that every Christian is called to do. Husbands are called to do something that every Christian is called to do. Paul is not only telling women to submit. He's telling both partners wait a minute, are you just trying to soften what the Bible says to make it more culturally acceptable? Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife. Is Christ the head of the church? So is the husband the head of the wife? Yeah, it's plainly clear in Scripture. But in saying so, I may have said something rather misleading because in English, when we think of the word head, we use it lots of metaphors, right? Head of the company. Uh, you know, head, head, head of the business. Uh, and we use it as authority over, uh, head of the team, someone who has authority over. In Greek, in ancient Greek, that's not how it was used. The Greek word is uh, phile, and it, in the first century usage, it, 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 it meant this right here, but it also uh, uh, is used in, in reference to the army. Someone who is the head of the army. Now, when we think, there's actually ancient documents that refer to the head of the army. We're like, well, okay, what's the head of the army? Is that the general or the commander in the back that's kind of bossing people around? No. Actually, in the first century, the head of the army was the first soldier to die. The one who leads the charge and is most likely to lay down his life. He probably won't survive, but he's brave, and he moves forward first. That's the head of the army. What a vastly different metaphor for the usage of head. It's not the person who's bossing people around the back. It's the person who lays down his life. So when the Bible says the husband's the head of the wife, we in the West say, aha, I'm the husband. I'm in charge. I'm, a, I'm in charge of the home. Wife, submit to me, almighty husband. That's reading our own Western bias into the scriptures. The husband is the one who lays his life down for his wife in sacrificial love, just like Jesus. And actually, the scriptures go on to share the role of the husband, and it's to husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Doesn't this passage of scripture make so much more under, uh, sense in understanding first century headship? In Christian marriage, it is not about living for yourself, but dying to yourself. No other relationship on earth is this more evident than in Christian marriage. I don't know where we got the idea that in Christianity, Jesus is the only one who does the dying. No, we die to ourselves every day. Marriage is difficult. It is much easier to try and convince Sarah to die to herself so that I could get what I want. That's not what love does. Love is the Christ-centered choice to relate to a someone as infinitely valuable. And husbands should lead the way in this. Paul says a lot more about how husbands are supposed to act. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Christian marriage is not about a quiet, submissive wife who bites her tongue and does her husband's bidding. Christian marriage is when the husband leads the way in sacrificial love for his family. And we model Christ-likeness. That's Christian marriage. So men lead that way. Men love that way. Love like Jesus. Give yourself away in sacrificial love to your spouse, to your family. Then Paul puts a bow on it in verse 33. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Husbands, love and love hard. Wives, respect your husbands. Interesting usage of words here by Paul. It's like he kind of throws that in at the end. Oh, and wives, respect your husbands. Why? Because he knows, Paul knows, that we pretend to not be sensitive, but we're sensitive, okay? Husbands are saying amen under their breath, but they're not going to say it out loud. We're sensitive. We have this innate need and desire to be respected and appreciated. And I know this is true for me in my marriage, okay? So wives, encourage and speak well of your man, okay? You might be surprised at the results that might come about. I remember time me washing my, you know, washing the dishes after, you know, dinner, and you know, Sarah's saying, John, those arms are looking good washing those dishes. And I'm like, yeah. She's like, you working out? And I'm like, yeah, you scrub those pots, John. And I'm like, yeah. My man is strong. <laughs> women, you are the prophet of your home. You can speak truth to your home, and the men will rise to the occasion. There's a survey taken in a large metropolitan church, over 10,000 people, and they asked couples, uh, what they fight about. They asked them all kinds of questions. Here's one of the questions they asked. They said, uh, what men, what, what do you fight with about your wives? And here's the list right here. Number one, communication or failure to listen. Number two, money, finances. Number three, feeling underappreciated or unappreciated. Number four, sex. Number five, household responsibilities or inattentive to my needs. Okay, guys, that's what we fight with our wives about. Women, what do you fight with your husbands about? Communication, failure to listen. Money, finances. Notice that the top three are all the same. Feeling unappreciated, household responsibilities, children. By the way, money is on there, number two, for both. Uh, we have a Financial Peace University course starting for our small groups just in a few weeks, led by uh, Matt Lloyd. And so this money is something we fight about, Okay and we're stressed about, and we're worried about, keeps us up at night. So I want to encourage you, uh, and if this has been an issue in your marriage, uh, we would encourage you to attend this class, to sign up in the back. It's short, few weeks, um, but your wallet will thank you, your bank account will, will thank you, your savings account will thank you, um, and your stress level will thank you. So we want to encourage you to think about signing up for that. But communication, money, feeling unappreciated, those are the same three. What's missing from the women's list? We talked about it last week, sex. 
They're not fighting about sex. Um, most of us who are married will recognize at least something on these lists that we fight about with some regularity, right? And if that's true for you, I just want you to hear this. You're normal. Okay? That's normal. Normal people have these conflicts. But instead of fighting with your spouse, fight for your spouse. Great marriages are not born. They're forged. They're forged through the troubles and trials of conflict and difficulty and children and job loss and financial strain and worry. They take great work. It doesn't come natural. Fight for it. I read of a grandmother celebrating her golden wedding anniversary, and uh, she was asked, tell us the secret of your long, happy marriage. She said, on my wedding day, I decided to make a list of 10 of my husband's faults, which for the sake of our marriage, I will overlook. So a guest asked, what were some of the faults that you chose to overlook? What were, the, what were some of those 10? And the grandmother replied, to tell you the truth, my dear, I never did get around to listing them, but whenever my husband did something that made me hopping mad, I would say to myself, lucky for him, that's one of the 10. I think there's some wisdom there. We have this idea that first you fall in love, and then it just follows naturally to do loving things. And that is true for the first six months. It's called the honeymoon phase. You've been there, your hands touch, it's electric, okay? When Sarah touches my hand, it's not electric anymore, okay? Like, that doesn't, that's not the way it works. Uh, the first time, you know, you're talking on the phone when you're first dating those first six months, you hang up. No, you hang up first. Okay, let's hang up at the same time. One, two, three. Why didn't you hang up? It's this talk all night long. You think about him constantly. You, you see, it doesn't last. It's the honeymoon phase. Uh, we have this idea, but in marriage it works the opposite way. First you do loving things, because as a Christian and a married person, you're called to do them. And then when you persistently do loving things, eventually you begin to feel those feelings again. Uh, Andrew Hamilton puts it this way. Adam Hamilton says, you do love until you feel love. And for those of you who are going through those dry seasons, those, those wilderness seasons in your marriage, uh, my encouragement is this. Do love until you feel love. Uh, love is not a feeling. It's the way you live and act out, whether you feel like it or not. Here's what happens when we're fighting all the time and can't get back to where we once were. And Pastor Stephen Furtick of Elevation Church was super helpful for me in trying to put these things together on paper. But marriage is not about how quickly you can get offended, but how quickly you can forgive. The more intimate the relationship, the more infinite the offense. The person closest to you has the power and the capabilities to hurt you most. Offense is an event, but offended is a decision. Is there a way to live less offended? Now, in the car, Sarah and I have our issues, okay? Uh, she's a great driver, but she is not good with directions. I'm amazing with directions, but I can't drive. And when she's driving or she's telling a story, 
I'm sitting next to her, and I see up ahead that we have to get in the left lane. But she's just ramping up her story. And I know I need to say something, so I think I'm being kind and curious and, 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 and courageous and courteous. I'm trying to say, I'm trying to not interrupt the story, so I just point. I point. I think it's considerate. She thinks it's annoying. Just tell me. Just tell me. Or I'll tell her, hey, babe, you're going to want to get off on Bullard here. And she goes, I know. I know how to get there. I know how to get there. Or I try the other way, okay? I know that we need to get off on Bullard, and, she, but, and she's in the far left lane. But she knows how to get there, so I'm not going to say a word. So then, and I go, you probably should have taken Bullard. Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> Five years ago, we were driving home from vacation from the beach, and I doze off in a Tascadero right, be right before, you know, the, the 41 connection, right? So I wake up, and I look around, and I, again, I, I've been... I, Travel the beach a bunch of times. I, I know the sights. I can look up and find out where we are. So I wake up, I look around, and I don't recognize anything, anything at all. And I go, where are we? And she goes, I don't know. <laughs> now, she did not come to that realization until I asked the question. Until I asked the question, where are we? She was just driving. We were headed for the Oregon border, okay? Uh... These things happen in marriage. So this couple right here, this couple, this represents you in your, in your relationship, your marriage, okay? And it doesn't have to be a marriage, it doesn't have to be a spell, but it represents the potential. You're thriving. It represents his offenses. Then, then these guys are representing offenses. So, you know, what are you going to do with these offenses when they show up? So I say something or Sarah says something, it's an offense, or it's something that I did, or it's something that I didn't do. It's an unmet expectation. An unmet expectation is actually the breeding ground for offense, right? And the breeding ground for unmet expectations is unexpressed expectations. We don't tell them. We don't tell the other person. We have to communicate. Early on in our marriage, we thought we had busy lives. We didn't, but we thought we did. I was a youth pastor, and whenever a student or a parent called, you know, I'd come running. I was leading a couple small groups. I was trying to provide a living and grow a ministry. At church events sometimes, I'd, afterwards, I'd go and hang out with friends just to kind of unwind because I'm working a ton. And I remember it was like four or five nights in a row. And uh, of me having church stuff at night, and Sarah let me know about it. And I go, I provide. I work hard. And all she is hearing is that she's not a priority. So here's what happens, right? She doesn't understand me. She's nagging. And the devil's like, yes, John, she doesn't care about you. She doesn't appreciate you. And what happens is I'm taking the offense and I'm building a fence between us. Now, what does she do? He's choosing work over me. What's going to happen when we have kids? Will I be raising kids by myself while he's going to coffee and calling it ministry? Like, and so, and the devil's like, yeah, go, Sarah, you tell it. He doesn't care about you. What's she doing? She's taking the offense and she's constructing a fence. Every time. She digs it down deeper every time she thinks about it. And each piece, it's, they're not that heavy, right? That's how it works. But once you have built up so many offenses, you've wedged something between you and your spouse. 
you don't even realize it's happening because it's no big deal, right? It's just one after the other. It's just not getting off on Bullard, me pointing. It's just another work event. It's just another, you know, he forgot our anniversary. And now you're thinking, I'm the only one who ever changes the toilet paper roll. And it rolls down this way, not that way. Amen? I guess I'll do it again. Don't worry. I got it. No, John, I would love to get up in the middle of the night and take care of the baby. No, I know. You've got to work. You've got to go to coffee and do ministry. And now what started as something small, now you're questioning why you said I do. And notice that when, when you build these fences up, it's, it's a lot less you, me, we, and a lot more me. The more we choose offended, all because of offense, where'd the love go? Why don't we talk anymore? Well, now you've constructed something between you. Sure, you sleep next to each other, but your hearts are in different zip codes. The enemy's agenda is destruction, his strategy is division, and his tactic is offense. But thankfully, we have been given a cure. If only we could find an example of someone who loved even in the midst of offense. If only there was some higher being that had every reason to hold it against us but chooses not to. If only there was someone who hung on a sinner's cross and took on the offenses that all of us have done and bore it and loved us and showed grace and mercy instead of unforgiveness, instead of holding it over our heads. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, Love doesn't have the file cabinet. You know the file cabinet, right? You're in a fight. Person says, oh, hold on just a second. On July 15th, 6.23 p.m., you said this. And now you're going to say that? It's going in the drawer. Love doesn't do that. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Have you ever noticed about the relational record keeper? They rarely keep track of their own missteps, but they're keeping track of everybody else's. Maybe you're in a frustrating argument with someone like this and you make the mistake and you say, well, I guess you're never wrong. And then they say, you always say that. Actually, let me see back. You said that back in October. <laughs> Listen, you can be exactly right in your argument and end up exactly alone. You can be right about what you say 100% of the time and no one will want to live with you. And it's, it won't be because you're wrong. It'll be because you're always right. You were right too often, and you just couldn't shut your stupid file cabinet and leave it shut. You kept pulling file after file, bringing up the past, and you were 100% right. Your details, your notes, your memory, it was perfect, and now nobody wants to be around you. Jesus says there's a better way. Forgive and live like you forgot. Forgive and live like you forgot. I invite knowing the band to come up. Jesus has got a file cabinet on you, and he's got a file cabinet on me. 
and it's enormous. He doesn't open it. He doesn't pull the file. He loves. And so if you are going through something, man, you're, you're going through some issues in marriage, I want to say this. There's no shame in counseling. I've seen God use it. And I'll say this too. I'm not a marriage counselor. Like couples try and meet with me. We're going through issues. And, the, and I'll meet with someone. I just go, listen, it's above my pay grade. Like, I love you guys. I'll give you my best shot. Here's what I know. Here's what I've experienced. But I don't have a license for this. I know the Bible. I study that. That's what my degree's in. Um, I've seen marriage therapy really, really help and bring healing to, to homes. But that said, some of you are going through this alone. And I want to encourage you to find someone, and maybe in, in a small group might be an opportunity to meet someone that you can trust. Another couple that has maybe been through that, have some more life experiences. Don't go through stuff alone. Don't go through stuff alone. God's with you. God loves you. Jesus is the way to bring healing to your homes and to your marriages and to your lives. And so we're going to end this series in a way that maybe we, we've never done. Uh, we're going to have Noe and the band sing a song called Sales. And, and as, as they sing this song, we want you to remain seated and just really ponder some of the things maybe God has brought to your heart or brought to the forefront of your heart and attention over these last three weeks and even this morning. And think about what those practical steps might be. And and yeah, it could be you thinking about that, but it also could be the Spirit of God bringing it to your attention, going, yeah, this is what you need to address. So God, I pray that, that we would take the steps you want us to take in our relationships. That you would help bring healing to the wounds that we have. And that God, that you would fill our hearts. And for those of us who have been longing for that next season and it hasn't shown up, God, I pray that you would be enough. And God, for those of us in, in marriages or those of us who feel like they might be stuck in a marriage, God, I pray that they, would, that they would get the joy of rediscovering the other. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.